Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Um, if this is your first Sunday here, uh, a couple things. First, um, my name's John Chambers, or FUD. I'm the pastor here. We're uh, super glad to have you. Um, we have been going through uh, a book. We go through books of the Bible probably about 45 out of the 52 weeks. And today we're going through 2 Timothy. Uh, we're, you're kind of catching us in the middle of 2 Timothy. So uh, I'm going to catch you up to speed if this is your first week. But if you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath you and grab one of those little uh, blue and white ones and just keep it. It's yours. And if you like have one at home and didn't bring it, just take it anyway. Take it back to your dorm or your house or whoever, wherever, and keep it and just give it away to somebody that needs one. So I um, want to go ahead and catch you all up to speed, and then we will, uh, we will start. But we are in 2 Timothy. Um, the reason why we're doing 2 Timothy is because about a year ago, I'm sorry, about five years ago when I started the church, um, we did 1 Timothy because we needed to talk about how does the church look? What does it look like to have pastors, etc.? And I don't like things not to be finished. And so I was like, Jack's, uh, he's an elder here as well. I was like, Jack, please let me do 2 Timothy sometime. And he said, all right, all right, we'll do 2 Timothy. So that's where we are. We're finishing up 2 Timothy. So I feel like, you know, everything's come to a close now. Um, if you're not like that, you probably can't identify, but my type A's, y'all can, y'all can feel me. You know what I'm saying? You can't leave something just sitting out there. Um, so that's why we're doing 2 Timothy. So to give you a little bit of uh, what's going on, um, 2 Timothy is written at the end of Paul's life. He is in jail. Uh, and this isn't like our jail where they get ESPN and air conditioning. Instead, they dug about an eight-foot hole. If you've seen Lost, it, I, I do this because I love Lost. But if you've seen Lost, there's one little point in the very, I don't know, season one or two where they take Sawyer and somebody else and they just throw them kind of down in a hole and they're just down in a hole down there. That's kind of more like what it's like for Paul in this jail. It's, it's jail, but it's really just an eight-foot hole. He doesn't have any blankets. He doesn't have any coats. He's probably cold. He has to use his jail as also his bathroom, etc. It's not, it's not ideal places uh, to be at all. It's not. And so he knows he's going to die. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think verse 6, uh, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows that he's about to die soon. He knows that he's going to be killed soon for his faith, and so he's got just a couple extra pieces of paper, likely, or parchment, or, you know, whatever, down there, and he's, he's going to write, I want to write to my son in the faith, Timothy, Timothy, some final thoughts about what it means to be a believer in Christ, and follow Christ, and, and be a pastor, and so if Paul, I mean, it's Paul, three missionary journeys, radical Paul, wrote half the New Testament, etc., is going to tell us something uh, about what it means to be a believer in Christ, we all want to kind of lean in on that. You know, we want to say, well, what's this guy going to say? This is, this is going to be pretty important. And so that's where we are. And so if you see up here, because I know y'all can't read Greek, uh, that's actually chapter 2, verse 2, just in Greek because it was likely written in Greek. And chapter 2, verse 2 uh, is kind of the key verse that we're using for the overview of all of Second Timothy. And the whole idea is this. Um, the gospel straight from Jesus was entrusted to me, Paul, as I was walking on the road to Damascus. And I came, um, and I've been trying to entrust it. Timothy, you were entrusted uh, the gospel by your mother and your grandmother. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, I think it's verse 5. It's, yes, verse 5. Your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice uh, gave you the gospel, and I came as kind of your spiritual father. And we, you've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, Timothy, that you've been entrusted with the gospel, you can see it here in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, 
and what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So now Timothy is going to go tell it to other people and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you've got that third generation that Timothy shared with going to a fourth generation. So fourth, four generations of disciples being made. And so the idea is, and here's the cool thing, is this, this plan, this plan of discipleship worked because here we are. 2,000 years later, and we're Christians. And so that means that little idea of, of making disciples that make disciples that make disciples actually worked. And so um, because of that, because Timothy was entrusted, Paul felt compelled to say, now that you've been entrusted with the gospel, you need to go and entrust the gospel to other people. And so that, that big blanket application applies to us. If you're in Christ, because someone came and has entrusted the gospel to you, therefore, you are, and you should feel, under an obligation out of love, not out of duty, but out of delight, to go and entrust this gospel to other people so that they can entrust it to others. And so that's where we are as we're looking at Second Timothy today. We're picking up in that idea. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we're going to jump in at a pretty kind of fair warning here, a pretty kind of weird set of verses today. So we'll be in chapter 3. Uh, and we'll, ju- we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you for your word. We'll see next week just how unbelievable your word is, where it says that it's literally been breathed out by you and that it's profitable for teaching and reproving us and correcting us and training us in righteousness so that we can be competent and equipped for every good work. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing word. This isn't just any book. This is the book. This, these are your very words. And so, God, I pray that um, because of that, you'll come now and speak through your word to all of us, including me, and that as we hear some of the things this morning, that we would be encouraged in our faith and that we would also be challenged to want to live out our faith because we've been entrusted with the gospel. We would want to go and trust the gospel to, uh, to other people. Be with us now, God, as we look into your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, fair warning. We're going to do verses 1 through 13 today. And this is a pretty set of uh, interesting verses and, and maybe going to be a little, I think, I think a little bit difficult to follow. So it, it, it's nice whenever, like last week, the, the set of verses is just awesome. It's like, here's kind of the main idea, and here's one thing, and here's another thing, and here's a third thing. And you're like, oh, the outline, perfect. Thanks, Jesus, that was really easy. Um, this one was, was a lot more difficult, I think, to kind of to see. But uh, basically, what's going on is there's, there's the last days that are going to be approaching. So l- let me try to give you the big idea from verses 1, thir- 1 through 13 of what's going on, and then hopefully you can see the breakdown of what Paul's trying to say. So if you look there in verse 1, it says, But understand this, that the last, in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Verse 1 sets the stage for us to kind of get an idea of what's going on. First of all, he says, Understand, Timothy, that we will be in the last days. So what we mean by the last days um, is uh, we are in the fourth quarter. We are in the ninth inning. We are in, if you're, if you're, if you're a music guy and not a sports guy or girl, um, you know, there's, there's a song last, well, depending on the band, uh, song usually lasts somewhere in the neighborhood of 
five to six, seven minutes. And it, and it starts off with this kind of whatever. And it gets to the point where you get to the crescendo, right? It's, it's building up to that, that big point where, you know, everybody's on the, singing the higher octave and the band's playing really loud and the, the guy on the drum gets to crash the cymbals. And then it, it kind of dies and then it, and it fades out. We're at that right there in time. We're at the crescendo of the song. Uh, and that happened about 2,000 years ago at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. Until Jesus comes again, we're, we're living in the last days. We're living in the fourth quarter. We're living in the ninth inning. Now, if you're, if you're not a, you know, following the same eschatology point as me, you might disagree with that. But this is the idea. Anyway, you'll agree with this, is um, these last days are important. The fourth quarter is the big deal. It's time to buckle down and say, let's go, Gamecocks. We're going to win this thing, right? It's, it's the fourth quarter, right, of, of, of time where in this fourth quarter, it's time, to, it's time to concentrate on making disciples. It's time to be more interested in making disciples than who's going to win American Idol or whatever, right? It, it just, it's a much more serious time. You don't have time to mix words, um, one, one guy I was reading at, at a commentator said, uh, it's similar to if you're an attorney and you're representing a client and it's 11.50 p.m. and your client is going to be put to death at 12. Whenever you're talking to the governor at that particular time of the state, you're not mixing words. You're saying as best as you can, this is why my client should not have to die. Now here's the interesting part, and this is what he said. Um, the good news is this, that the people that we're trying to tell about Jesus, the pardon has already been granted to them, but the inmate hadn't heard it yet. That means the good news of Jesus says that they can be forgiven for all their sin and pardon can be granted and they can be exonerated of their sin and now be able to be transferred into the kingdom of heaven. They just, no one's come and told them yet. And it's the fourth quarter. It's the last days. So, Setting the stage for you, it's, it's serious. And in those last days, Paul wants Timothy to know something. He says, there will come times of difficulty. Now that sets the stage for us. So as we see there will be times of difficulty, what we realize is that we are living in the last days, and the last days has this kind of overarching feel. There's a feeling that Christians will have towards them, which is this, opposition. Now, uh, I could have used persecution, could have used persecution. We see that in verse, I think it's 12 or 13. 12, all, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the, uh, the real word is persecution. But I think for us in America, hardly any of you receive persecution. I mean, really, I don't. I, I, I stand up here every week and I don't receive real persecution. So I, I tried to broaden it out a little bit and still carry the flavor of persecution. Certainly they're feeling that over in the Middle East, Christians are. Um, I tried to use the word opposition so that you couldn't say, well, I'm not ever persecuted. This doesn't apply to me. You, you can say, okay, opposition. I can feel that word and say yes to it. I can feel that word and say yes to it. Um, so the, 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 the feel of this, the overall context of verses 1 through 13 that we're going to say is opposition. And you can see in verse 13, I want you to look at verse 13 with me um, of what we mean. Here's... Here's the flavor of the people that are going to oppose people in the last days, which is what we're in, which is what you should be feeling. It says this, verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's, there's two kinds of people. There's evil people and there's imposters. And that, that's our two points today. That's really, if you, 
get the whole thing, that's it. There's evil people and there's imposters. Meaning, evil people, those are people that oppose Christians, but they're not in the church. And there's imposters. Those are people that oppose Christians and they're in the church. That's, that's the two ideas. There's, in, there's people that are going to give opposition to people that are Christians in the last days. Some of them will be in the church. Some of them will be outside the church. So uh, if we go back to um, verses 1, verse 1 through 9, that's where we're going to look. And let me go ahead and put up number 1. So the point of the idea is being a Christian in the midst of oppos- opposition. And here it is. Because of our ministry, uh, we will have opposition. And when you say because of our ministry, you say, well, I'm not a minister. I, I, I'm not a pastor. What do you mean my ministry? Because we're all ministers of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian has to go and say, be reconciled to God. That's exactly what it says in uh, 517. You're all ministers, every single one of you. And so because you are a minister of reconciliation, if you're a Christian, and because you're living in the last days, there will be some level of, of opposition that that probably will be happening to you. I'm going to conclude with you whether it will or is not happening to you at all. Um, That'll be at the very end. Because our ministry um, will have opposition within the church, we should then, because that's going to happen, then there's something that we need to do. We should then continue to believe, we should pursue Christ, and we should abide in his word. Now, the reason why I picked those three particular things as our defense against opposition is because I think that's what Paul tells us in verses 14 and 15. He concludes this, this section of 1 through 13 with verses 14 and 15 saying, because this is going to happen, here's your only hope. Here's, here's what all you got. And he, he says it, and you can see it in verse, uh, as we just read, evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse. They're going to deceiving and be deceived. And, uh, deceiving. So he looks at Timothy and goes, but as for you then, here's what you can do when that happens. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And so he's telling them to continue. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a, a command. It's in the command form. As he's telling him, it's a, it's in a continual imperative. I want you to continue in what you've learned and believed. That means continue believing and pursuing Christ. Have you been acquainted with the sacred writings? That means you have his word. Therefore, you need to abide in his word. So as opposition comes... And as I put in this one, within the church, there's going to be opposition. And I'm going to give some examples from verses 1 through 9 of what opposition inside the church looks like. Then our only hope as opposition comes to us as ministers of reconciliation is that we need to continue to believe, we need to continue to pursue Christ, and we need to continue to abide in his word. Now, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 is going to present to us kind of three different... um, Three different levels or three different kinds of opposition in the church that come to us. Now, here's the deal. I know that you're probably not going to see things exactly like this. Perhaps you will, and perhaps you have. What I'm going to try to do as we go through verses 1 through 9, and we look at these kind of three different people that will oppose people within the church, I'm going to try to draw out why it was happening and make applications for you where you are um, in your life right now. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verses 2 through 4 is our first little section. Verses 2 through 4. And I want you to notice this. Um, There are 19 different descriptions, depending on how you kind of count that last one. Some people say 18. I think it's 19. 19 different descriptions that are pretty indicting of an immoral person. Look at the description. I mean, it's, it's amazing. For people will be 
Lovers of self. Now, we should stop there before we read the rest. Because the lovers of self, as Calvin looks at this particular text, said, this first one that he lists is really the source. This is how Calvin says it. Self-love is the source from which flow all the vices that follow afterwards. So the the idea that they're self-centered, not God-centered, the idea that they in their mind, reside at the center of the universe rather than God. It's like whenever, you know, they used to think earth was at the center of the solar system rather than the sun. Whenever we're living as uh, people that are in the earth, us, at the center of the world instead of the sun, God, then this is what happens. We're self-centered. And that, that vice, as Calvin calls it, um, the lover of self is, is what's going on. The rest of these follow. The rest of these follow. Look at all these titles. This is rather interesting. Kids, kids, if you're a child, notice one of them that really stands out. Um, And maybe adults, but listen. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. So far, these are terrible. And look at this. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brooding, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure, and then, depending on if you say that that's number 18, rather than lovers of God, lovers of pleasure, and I put that as the last one, not lovers of God. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. Instead, this is just kind of setting the stage for what we're talking about. Kids, notice, um, that's a pretty bad list if you're a child. Notice that disobedient to parents is in that list. So, Paul ranks being disobedient to your parents with things like brutal, ungrateful, self-centered. I mean, the list is pretty, pretty bad. And being disobedient to your parents is equal to all those things. So maybe that applies to adults as well. But I thought, wow, that one certainly stands out as striking in our Western minds. That's not seeming to fit, it seems like. Uh, back to the list. Um, what I want you to know is instead of taking each one of those and ticking them off and trying to explain, I think what you can all see, uh, all those are pretty ex- are self-explanatory. All those 19 things kind of fall into really three big buckets, three big categories. Those three big categories are narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. Narcissism is what do I want to be? That's kind of the, uh, the lover of self. Um, I am, am the center of my universe, therefore I'm the most narcissistic, um, self-involved person in the world. And so... I, I think that technology and social media has made this even more so. I mean, can people take more selfies and be more self-involved than, than you know, I don't care what you're eating right now. Why do I care that you're eating 15 things of turkey or whatever? Like, social media, I think, has enhanced for us selfies and self-centeredness and narcissism. Um, we, we really think that people really care about what our hair looks like today. Maybe they do, and maybe they should, but likely we don't. Um, and so narcissism because of, self, uh, because of uh, social media, I think, is, is blown out. So that's the first one. And you can see the different ones that, that go into that self-involved. But also materialism. Materialism like lovers of money, etc. Um, this is to have. So if narcissism is to be and everything's about me, materialism is to have. And I just want it all. Uh, I'm a lover of money, etc. And then there's hedonism, and that's to feel. And you can see things like, and lovers of pleasure, without self-control, um, unholy. And that just, I want to feel it all. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, 
a right affection of feeling towards God or a sinful affection. Everything in this list falls down into one of those three categories. Tony Marita, as he's looking at this list, says, everyone worships something or someone, and one's life is a spillover of that supreme love. Therefore, if we go back to that first one, if lover of self and we are at the center of the universe, then we will worship ourselves and everything will fall into place after that. However, if it's the opposite, if God's at the center of the universe and we worship him, then everything that spills over will be most likely, most dominantly God-centered. And so as we look at this list, we shouldn't necessarily consider it um, exhaustive. Instead, uh, indicative of what the kind of person would be. And you could add a whole bunch of more stuff to that. So what's indicative of you? Are you a lover of self or are you a lover of God? Do you worship yourself more than anything? Or if we were to count your tweets and organize them into, or your Instagrams or your Facebooks, uh, I don't do Facebook, so I'm probably going to get it wrong how I talk about it. But is it more about me or is it more about Jesus? You know, and what's the scale? Then we can just get a, a sampling of whether we're self-involved or not. Um, it could be that you're not, and maybe that's the wrong way to, to guess it. Now, if those three buckets kind of fill up those 19 things, narcissism, materialism, hedonism, then we need to then pursue the opposites of those things, humility, integrity, and generosity more self-forgetful than self-worshipping, um, more having more integrity than being hedonistic, more generous than clinging to our things. We need to pursue the opposite of those things. As we love God, as we love God, now, when I say pursue humility, integrity, and generosity, I don't mean just as uh, a moral person that lives in this world that whether you're a Christian or not, you just want to have the virtues of. I don't mean that. Instead, I mean, as people that are in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the only way that I can do it is, is because of the gospel, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for me on my behalf, and that he has imputed those kinds of things to me, and he has declared those things of me, and because the Spirit has come, as it says in Acts 1-8, and given me power, now I can pursue humility, integrity, and generosity. That way, it's for God's glory and not for my own. So that's what we're talking about. Godliness that we're supposed to, be, that we're supposed to have comes and springs from, and it finds its foundations in, um, and underpinnings in, adoration and worship for God. So we must be back up to number one. Not lovers of self, but instead lovers of God. So Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, these are the kinds of men, that description of the kinds of men that are going to oppose you then in ministry, Timothy. So then, remedy. These kinds of people, these types of people, as you're within the church, this is within the church, Paul thinks being very generous to them, saying, these people will claim the name of Jesus. Maybe they even are, but they will oppose you into, in the church. These are the kind of people that will oppose you in your faith in the church. Therefore, if that's the kind of people that are wanting to seek you out and destroy you in your faith, you must, as those three things kind of tell us in verses 14 and 15, you must continue to believe, pursue Christ, and abide in his word. These are your defenses. These are the God-given defenses that he tells Timothy. Sure, you can add some more, but we'll just stay with those three today. Believe, continue believing the gospel, pursue Christ, and abide in his word. That's the first one is, um, the first one 
is these morally bankrupt, ungodly, self-centered people that are going to oppose you. You can go to, yeah, there it is. Morally bankrupt, ungodly, self-centered people oppose you. Now, there's a second kind of people that will oppose us in the church, verse 5. And it says this, these same kinds of people that are in verses 2 through 4, a a subset of those are going to do this. They're going to have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They're going to have the appearance of godliness. So they're going to say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in the gospel. And we know that from Romans 1.16, that's the power. It's from the gospel. Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit, that's the power. So we've got the gospel coupled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power. So they're going to say, I believe in that. But as it says in verse 5, they're denying its power. So on the outside, they look moral. But the reason why they don't have power is because they don't believe in the gospel coupled with the Holy Spirit. So these people are imposters. These people are religious fakes. So the second group of people that we'll see are imposters or religious fakes that will oppose you. And when that happens... Our defense then is to continue to believe, pursue Christ, and abide, and abide in his word. True godliness comes from Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's where the power of godliness is. These people are denying that power that the gospel brings and instead that they can produce it by themselves just merely by their outward behavior. These are religious showmen. These guys think that the, or girls, think that the outside um, of, of their behavior is what matters. They're religious fakes. Now, I'm not saying perhaps you know one and perhaps you should point them out and tell them. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. Instead, I'm saying, I mean, that would be an awkward conversation, right? Uh, If you know them well enough, probably you should since they're supposedly in the church. Um, But my point is this. They are going to, at times, oppose Christians. They're going to oppose Christians. You you might be thinking, that never happens to me. We're going to get to that at the very end. But when that happens... The same defense is believe, pursue Christ, and abide, abide in his word. Now, this next little section, verses 6 through 9, is probably, I think, the most interesting. Um, I'll go ahead and put up point C. This is still under number one. Here's the third kind of opposition. False proselytizers. If you don't know what that means, um, children, a proselytizer is someone who tries to convert someone. So that's what I'm doing. So you could consider me a proselytizer. That means I'm trying to make you believe in Jesus. Um, a false proselytizer, I would hope that I would not be. Um, but a proselytizer or an evangelist or a preacher or a proclaimer of the gospel, etc., um, is someone that tries to get you to believe in what they believe in. Um, proselytizing is the act of doing it. These particular people are fra- false proselytizers, false preachers, false evangelizers. They have a wrong message and they are doing it in the church. Now, um, I want you to notice a couple things first. I want you to notice who the prey are. Who are these false proselytizers seizing after? Notice this. For among them, so among these these people in verses uh, 1 through 5, there are those that will creep into households and capture weak women. They will capture weak women. So the, the main target of false proselytizers in, in this text and maybe even always, is, is weak women. Weak women. What do I mean by that? Uh, John Stott says, uh, these particular false proselytizers choose a time when the men folk would be out concentrating their attention maybe at work, and they false proselytizers then seek their attention on weak women. Now, let's be clear here. 
Paul is not saying that all women are weak. He's not saying, like, weak is the description of what he views as women. That's not exactly what he's saying at all. Instead, he's speaking of a certain kind of women. He's speaking of a certain kind of women. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. And so some of you ladies, maybe you know women like this. Hopefully none of you are like this. I don't think you are. I think y'all are strong Christian women. But he's saying um, these particular men prey on weak women. This is literally. So this this word weak maybe doesn't carry with it enough. So I tried to get as much uh, description as I can so we can understand what kind of women these false proselytizers find as such an easy target, such an easy mark. This, there's, there's all kinds of descriptions here. They're weak-minded women. They're just weak women. They're weak-natured women. They're silly, idle. That means they, they just waste their time. Silly, idle women. They're soft women. They're easy marks. They're women that won't amount to much in life. So this is the kind of women that Paul, that word that he uses for weak carries all that meaning behind it. Um, Now, Remedy Women, I don't think that this describes you, and hopefully it never will describe you. But this is what he's talking about. These are women that are weak morally. They, They don't have a problem, really, after maybe a small amount of coercion to falling into sin. But they also are weak intellectually. They don't do the work of exercising their mind to be smart. They don't do the work of exercising their mind to pursue truth. So they're weak both morally and intellectually. How does this happen to these particular women? Um, It says that they're captured. It says for women among those will creep into households and capture weak women. This is literally like the same idea of taking a prisoner in war. They're captured. And then it says um, another way it happens is because they're burdened with sins. Therefore, they have unclean consciences. These are women that have probably a pretty serious sin pattern in their life. They don't know what to do with it. Um, They have unclean consciences, and because of unconfessed, ongoing sin that they're involved in, these men that come speak to them with smooth talk, and they said, oh, that sounds perfect. That's going to get me out of this conscience feel I have. Yes, I love those words, and so the smooth talk draws them out because they think that's going to finally be the balm Uh, those words are going to be the balm that soothe their bad conscience. So they're captured by the men. It's because they have burdens of sins. And notice this. It says they're also led away by various passions. Um, This is women that, like I said, aren't strong morally. They they have uh, sinful desires and they're led away by those sinful desires. You can fill in the blank on what that might mean. It can mean any number of things, not just what you're probably thinking. Um, but also it says, notice this, this is interesting. Another way they're led by is they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. This means that they're continually trying to learn, but because they're intellectually weak and the messenger that's teaching them doesn't give them the gospel, they'll never arrive at the truth. They're always learning, but never arriving at the truth. Modern day example. It means trying to get the gospel from Oprah. <laughs> like, I'm going to continually learn and learn and learn and learn from her. But for some reason, I never arrive at the truth. It's because she's never going to give you the gospel, right? She's going to give you spiritualities. But she's never going to give you Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we mean by this. It's, they're always learning, 
but never arriving at the truth because who they're learning from is not giving them the gospel. So that's what's going on here. That's, that's how it happens. So if we look at these things, we look at the description of this, I thought it would be great then to say, let's have a direct talk towards women. Actually, Paul's generous. I get to have a direct talk towards men in just a minute. But towards women first. Um, I want to talk to you, and I'm not saying these things are true of you, but as we look at these women, I want to not try to indict you, but instead, women, encourage you. I want to encourage you with these particular words to say, if that's the case, I don't want to be a weak woman. Weak woman. I want to be a strong woman. So let's talk about what that would look like in your lives. We want strong, intellectual women. We want women that are smart, women that like to think, women that like to know Jesus and know his word and study his word. I think, if, if you're honest, women, that's who you want to be. Like, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be a weak intellectual. I want to be a strong intellectual. I want to read stuff that I don't even know what it says, but then try to understand it anyway. You know what I mean? Like, I want to read the classics and the Word of God and dive into it. So if, if you're not one of those kind of women, then you're putting yourself at least over in the, in the likelihood, because this is in the church. This is opposition in the church. You're putting yourself over in the likelihood that you can be captured by these smooth talkers. Can be. So let's have women that are strong intellectually, but also let's have women that aren't idle. They don't also sit around and do nothing. Instead, they get stuff done. They're the Proverbs 31 woman. They're buying fields. They're making stuff. They're doing stuff. Like, they're just awesome. They get everything done. Like, they can be counted on by their husbands in their church. If there's somebody uh, that, needs, that we need to get something done, oh, we've got so-and-so because she's a woman that gets stuff done. She's not idle, sitting around, Facebooking all day, wasting her time. Like, she's a, she's a woman that gets stuff done. Um, if you use Facebook all day, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. That's how Vody Balkum says it. Um, anyway, silly. Another one is that we don't want silly women that are consumed with the silly things of the culture. These women were silly. That's literally almost the, the, the best translation is silly women. So we don't want women that are silly that are consumed with the silliness of the culture. Now, I want to be careful here um, because I'm not, I'm not an anti-culture guy. There's, there's some people that are like Jesus and church and culture, and we got to run away from it because culture's evil and stay away. I'm not one of those guys. I'm one of those guys that says, here's culture, and everything's Jesus's, so therefore let's transform the culture for Christ. So when I say silliness, that you're not involved in culture, this is what I mean. Let's be real precise. We want women that are not consumed with the silliness of our culture, but instead women that are desirous to transform the culture for Christ. So there's things in the culture that you've got to be involved in. You're the best at it, women. Better than us in some cases. And we need you to not be involved and captured by the silliness, but instead to be involved in the culture in order to transform it for Christ. Women that are ready and able to apply the healing balm of the, of the gospel to our culture and bring renewal. And there's some situations that you are far more suited than men for that. Far more suited. And we need you in there. So we don't want silly women. But also we don't want women that are easy marks. We don't want women that are easy marks. But instead... They stand against opponents that tempt them. We don't want women that won't amount to much, but instead we want women that are active in our city, known in the city of Rock Hill for making a difference because they get out there and they, they, with all of their willpower and time that the Lord's allowed them, make a major difference in this city 
for Jesus. So that's, that's the kind of women we want. And I, I, when you hear that, and you're a woman, and you just say, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's, that's exactly what I want. I want to be that. And I'm saying, I'm not accusing you and saying you're not. I'm encouraging you and saying, well, let's get after it. Let's do it. Let's be those kinds of women, not me, but you. Uh, if my wife were here, I'd say, let's do it. You know, but uh, she'll be here second service. So I'm saying, like, let's, let's have those kinds of women in Remedy Church that want to do that. Think about that. I mean, look at those things that are descriptive of those women, and we want to be the opposite of those things at Remedy. We, as in you women. Now, um, as we continue in verse 8, I'm going to get to talk to guys now. So in verse 8, it says, Just as Yanes or Janes, depending on the J, I don't know. Um, just as Yanes and Yambres, or Janus and Jambres, these are men, these are terrible names, um, opposed Moses. Um, if you're pregnant, hey, there's two names. Um, there's always pregnant people at Remedy. Uh, just as Jonathan and John Brace opposed Moses. So you're like, I don't remember those two guys. When did they oppose Moses? Uh, you know, maybe two of you thought that. But back in Exodus, chapter 7, verse 11, um, whenever Moses and Aaron were facing Pharaoh, and they had their little s- stick, and they threw it down on the ground, and it turned to a snake, two of the magicians that Pharaoh had did the same thing. Um, those two guys, those two magicians, uh, were named Yannis and Yambres commentators from the Old Testament. The, the Bible doesn't name them, but the commentators that thought about it, oral tradition and kept going. And so they, Paul knows it because he's, he studies the word. He, he knows that those two guys that did that were these two particular guys. And so he's saying, just like those two guys that opposed Moses when they're doing the magicians. Um, so these men, so we're, now we're talking to men. We're talking about the men that are descriptive of verses one all the way down. They're the ones that have these awful morals. They're the ones that have these... Uh, these fake imposters, they're the ones that try to lead women astray. Just like those men, it goes, so just as Jonathan and John Braze opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly or their foolishness will be plain to all, as was that of those two men, as, uh, as was that of Jonathan and John Braze. So um, these false preachers, these false proselytizers are going to do some things. What they're going to do is prey on weak women. They're going to oppose the truth, as it says in verse 8. They're going to corrupt others' minds, as it says in 8. They're going to disqualify their own faith, as it says in verse 8. And their foolishness will eventually be known to everybody, says that in verse 9. Those are the things that are descriptive of these men, that they're prey on weak women, they oppose the truth, they corrupt their minds and other, others' minds, they eventually disqualify their own faith, and eventually their foolishness is known to everybody. That's the opposition in the church of men. So remedy. Let's not have men like that. Instead, let's have men. I'm not saying you're these things, men. I'm saying in light of that, I want to encourage you towards the opposite of those things. Let's have men that don't prey on women or see them as objects to conquer, but instead we marry them, just one, um, and then we love them as Christ loved the church. And we serve them and we lead them and we shepherd them, and we guide them, and we are to them as Christ is to the church. You don't have one. You get your one, and then you do everything you can to pursue her, and love her, and treasure her, and lead her on in Christ-likeness. Let's not have men that prey on women and, and see them as objects, but instead love that one. Instead, women that prey over their woman, P-R-A, not P-R-E. Why? Um, and also, let's not have men that oppose the truth, but men that love the truth. 
that pursue truth. They push themselves, just like the women here, intellectually to think, to read, to be a deep person. Not just think that you're deep because you watch the show Lost. I watch Lost, so I understand all kinds of philosophy. No, you don't. Instead, read the classics. Read the Bible. Know all the things. Lead your family. Um, Pray over your family. Lead them into truth because you love the truth. Let's have men that do that. Let's also, instead of have men that have, I don't want men that have corrupt minds. Um, Instead, we have men that love to fill their minds with truth. They don't, their desire isn't to lead people away into corruption because we hate sin. Instead, we want to, to lead people into Christ, away from sin. We also want to see this world, we don't want to see people led away into corruption. We, instead, we want to see people led into being transformed for Christ. We also don't want men that are to disqualify themselves. We don't want men that will disqualify themselves from ministry. Um, I am in my 30s. At the end of my 30s, but I'm in my 30s. I'm still claiming it, at least for the next four months or so. Um, and here's the deal. Um, even at my rather young age, I have now seen far too many of my ministry friends disqualify themselves in ministry because of sexual sin. I've seen far too many. Far too many. Two in one day about two weeks ago. And so men, let's not have the kind of men that disqualify themselves and discount themselves from great ministry. Instead, let's have men that want to keep themselves pure and holy and love their wife and march forward in amazing gospel-licious ministry, telling as many people as they can about Christ. And then lastly, let's not have men that are known as fools to everyone but instead they're known because of their Christ-likeness to everyone. Let's have men that are known for their Christ-likeness, not for foolishness, as it says. So that's kind of ending up our first one. That's the opposition inside the church. Now, the second part is opposition outside the church. This is opposition outside the church. Let me, um, let me tell you why I think it's outside the church. Dr. Bruce Ashford, one of my uh, professors, uh, he's an awesome fellow, he says, in this particular context of Paul, he's speaking of Paul as he's doing his, his three uh, missionary journeys. He said, the most biblical context of Christian ministry is opposition and persecution for, for Paul. That seems to be, over and over, the most biblical context we can understand ministry is opposition and persecution. Now, we don't feel that, likely. A lot of it's the blessing of God, I'll agree. Um, We'll get to that in a second. But if you look um, in verse 11, I'm going to tell you why I thought that was inside and why I think this is outside. Verse 11, um, notice where he says, uh, he's telling Timothy to remember what happened to him. And he says, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, these persecutions I adored, endured, um, yet the Lord rescued from me all. So he, he names these three cities. And we have the book of Acts that actually tells us Paul going through these missionary journeys. And as, as you look through it, as, as you go to, specifically when Paul was at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, he was at, uh, this is in the book of Acts from Acts 13, where did I put it? Acts 13, at 13 through 14, 23. You can actually see Paul going to those three particular cities. And as he's going to those three particular cities, and as he's preaching the gospel, and then people are violent. Then he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews that are not Christians. They come and stir up 
uh, division and they drive Paul out of the city. And then he goes to the third city and he preaches the gospel and he heals a crippled man um, from Iconium to Lystra. And then as he gets to the final city, um, as he gets to Lystra, people from Antioch and Iconium, Jews that were not Christians, that are not in the church, those two cities bring a whole bunch of people to Lystra. They take Paul, they stone him. This is, you know, throwing the rocks. Um, They drag him out of the city and they leave him out, outside of the city, laying on the road for dead. And in their minds, they just killed Paul. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, these are, these are, that happened to Paul a lot. Like, he got beat up and knocked down and, and, and um, suffered a lot of persecution for the faith. But in this particular time, at those three particular cities, that's where Timothy was from. So likely, this is one of the very first meetings, the very first spottings of Timothy and Paul. Timothy was probably very young, very impressionable. And so as this man, we know Timothy was a Christian because his mother and his grandmother raised him in a Christian home. So as this man comes, he sees Paul get beat up, rocks thrown at him, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. And all that just made this this mark on Timothy. And so Paul, as he's writing here, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to follow all those things. And of all the cities he could have picked, he picks these three particular cities because Timothy knows, that's whenever I met you. And that's when you made this amazing kind of impression upon me. Like, wow, this man's serious about Christ. This man is really serious about Christ. So when Paul says, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. And then he names these three particular cities, Antioch and Icodem and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, left for dead on the side of the road. Everybody thought I was dead. But yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. So Timothy knows exactly what Paul's talking about. He was probably an eyewitness to this as a young boy. And we know, as young boys, we're quite impressionable. Quite impressionable. I mean, my little boy, he's back in the back. He's six years old. It doesn't matter what I do. Eventually, within the next 24 hours or so, he's going to be doing it. You know? So... This is a very young Timothy seeing this way of life. We don't know how old Timothy was at that particular time. But um, the second thing I want you to see here, the second kind of category, is because our ministry will have opposition outside the church, we should continue to believe, pursue Christ, and abide in the Word. Same three things. Inside the church, I want you to note the the difference between these two things. Because we saw inside the church and now outside, and I've kind of shown the difference. Inside the church, the opposition usually is going to be moral issues. We have terrible behavior by terrible people trying to drag you out into terrible behavior. Outside the church usually is going to be more persecution, not moral, persecution. Terrible people that tried to kill us. Those are the kind of, it seems to be the the difference in the oppositions inside and out. One's moral, one's persecution, one's more violent. So he tells him here, um, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith. And this is interesting because it's my, 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 my. It doesn't say you have followed Jesus' teaching and Jesus' conduct and Jesus' aim of life and Jesus' faith. It doesn't say that. He looks at him and he says, I'm your spiritual dad and you followed my, 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 my. You just think, what kind of self-centered, narcissistic, self-involved deity does this guy Paul think he is? Who are you, Paul? Right? Well, this is not Paul saying, I'm awesome and worship me. There are numerous times where Paul, as he wrote, 
carried along by the Holy Spirit, said in 1 Corinthians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9, where he says something like this. Hey, people, what I want you to do is imitate me and follow me as I imitate Christ and follow Christ. And he's telling Timothy the same thing here. I want you to hear this, Christians. Make sure you hear this one point. If you don't listen to anything, hear this. You cannot be afraid because it's biblical to tell people, follow me, imitate me as I follow Christ. That's biblical. It's not unbiblical. It's not self-involved. There's a way to say it that's self-involved, but just saying it is not. And so here's the key to all that. Live a life then that's worthy to be imitated and followed as you follow Christ. Because if you are, it's, it's great advice to tell somebody that's your spiritual son or your spiritual daughter. So Paul lists out these things. We don't have to go through all those. We should say this is leadership, not lordship. This is leadership, not lordship. Tony Morita says leadership is not lordship. This is, this is him leading Timothy, not being his lord. And he gives um, a list of stuff. You have followed my teaching, my conduct. And so he mentions teaching first so that he has the right doctrine. He understands the right things about Jesus. And then he talks about these other things, the kind of teachings that he has. Um, one commentator said that the, the last four are kind of the heart of being a Christian, faith, patience, love, and steadfastness. Um, so you read these things, and all of them sound awesome until you get to the last one. <laughs> all of them sound like, those things are awesome. I want to follow people that have good teaching and good conduct and good aim of life and good faith, good patience and good love and good steadfastness and persecution. That's the one I don't like. I don't like that one. Don't want to have to per- be persecuted and suffer, um, which we know from Jesus' sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, um, that if people... Uh, persecute you or revile you, count it all as joy because you know that because you're following Christ that they're, they're saying these things to you. So we, we count it as joy. So if we're going to look at Paul and say, all right, Paul, you're telling Timothy all these things about your life are things that he should emulate, things that he should have in his life. Well, what is your kind of teaching, Paul? Is it good or bad? What is your conduct? Is it awful or is it holy? What, kind, what is your aim in life? What does your faith look like? What does your patience look like? What does your love look like? What does your steadfastness look like? Well, Paul gives us one little glimpse. He gives us a lot, but I'm going to use one verse because I really like it, um, of what that actually looks like. Acts 20, verse 24. If we're wondering what Paul's life looks like so that Timothy can follow, he says, this is Paul saying, but I do not, if we're saying, is this kind of man that someone I should imitate? And you can just look at this verse and say, this is the kind of verse that I should have. Look at this. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, which is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So if there's a verse that kind of captures Paul's life, we're asking ourselves, is his teaching and conduct and his aim of life and his faith and his patience like Jesus? Well, he just says, I don't count my life worth any of value or precious to myself. I just want to finish the course that was given to me by Jesus, which is to preach the gospel. Well, then, yeah, then that is the kind of teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, and persecution that's worthy to follow. Because he, he's not messing around when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's, he's not saying, follow me as I follow some form of Christ that you may or may not be. 
he's following Christ. So these are things then that we need to add to our life. If you're looking at that little list here, what's, what do I need, to, if I'm looking at this list of teaching, conduct, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, what in, my, in that list um, do, needs to be added to my life? Which one am I not doing great at? Me personally, patience. Maybe it's not you. But patience, man, it, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's something that has to be added to my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control. So we, what in there, this is just a personal reflection time. This is an answer out loud time. What in there, maybe you want to write it down somewhere or circle it. It's okay to write in your Bible. Circle it. Like, that's the one I want to start concentrating on. But he ends it with this amazing little lit, uh, one of persecutions and sufferings. Paul literally says, follow all the things and follow my persecutions and sufferings. And I think that's probably the most foreign concept out of all the list to us. What does it look like to follow someone's persecutions and sufferings? And why, better question, why are they happening to him? Why are they happening? So this is how we're going to conclude. There's a theologian named John Stott. He's an Englishman. This is what he says regarding that. So as we read verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, will be persecuted. Um, we read that and we're saying, okay, um, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm not being persecuted, really. I will grant to you, without question, l- likely a good portion of that is the blessing of God on us to get to live in 2014 in America. Like, that's just the blessing of God. So I will grant that to you. But let's also do this. Let's, let's change persecution to opposition, because I think that's a little bit more in our, in our wheelhouse of where we live. And I want you to listen to these two John Stott quotes um, and ask yourself, as we've been talking about opposition and you never get it, let's, let's hear these two things and say, if I'm going to maybe ever receive any kind of opposition, what has to be in my life? This is what has to be in your life. Two things. You have to be in Christ and you have to be in the world. Both. Has to be both. This is what Stott says. Those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted because they do not come into contact and there is no collision to potential persecutors. So if we're just in Christ and removed from the world and the reason why you never receive opposition is because you're never actually around sinners. You're never actually around people that need to hear the gospel and of course you're never receiving any of opposition because you're just over in a holy huddle away from all the sinners because you might catch the sinnies and you don't want to do that. So that's first thing. So we can't just be the kind of people that are all about Christ but not in the world. There's a reverse idea, Stott says. And those who are in the world but not in Christ, that means not walking with Christ. Uh, They're Christians but they're not walking with Christ. Very descriptive, I think, of verses one through nine. Um, They also are not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute just look like them why would they think that you're any different than them so yes we live in america yes we're it's a blessing however if there's ever going to be opposition towards you which i'm not asking for you to say oh i want opposition bring it on jesus like that's not what i'm saying instead let's just read the very beginning of that i want to i desire to live a godly life in christ jesus that's what i desire that's what i'm saying here's my life lord 
do what you want to with it. I want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That I'm saying, then you need to have a life that's um, descriptive of someone that lives in Christ and lives in the world. That will be the only way there will ever be opposition. Not because you're looking for opposition, but instead because you're looking for a life that's demonstrating evidence that you're in Christ, demonstrating evidence that you care about lost people, you care about being around them, you care about seeing them come to know Christ. So Remedy, let's have both of those in our lives. Let's have people that walk with Jesus and missionaries into this world. Wherever you are, a missionary into your, your world. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll have a time of worship. Wherever you are and however the Holy Spirit's dealing with you right now, whatever we've talked about, uh, we've got a little space here. We've got some time here uh, as we sing. If you've heard from God, I mean, this is God's word. This isn't me. This is the Lord's word. And if he's spoken to you through his word, I would just say this. Be obedient to how the Holy Spirit's leading you right now. Maybe you need to sit and read through some of these scriptures and pray. God, help me be more faithful. Help me have better conduct. Help me... Um, live a life that's more patient. Help me be in Christ and also care about the lost and be a missionary. Or women, maybe as you heard this, you're saying, I want to be a woman that pursues Christ, isn't silly, etc. Or men, maybe you want to be the kind of man that loves his wife well. I mean, there's so many things we kind of covered. Be obedient to how the Holy Spirit's leading. Maybe you need to sit, think, and pray. Or maybe you just need to stand and say, you're all I have. You're my only hope. Everything's for you. We've got two or three songs here. We have space here for you to really have a time of thinking about what Christ has said to you and then we'll come up later for dismissal. So I'm going to pray and then you can um, you can go as the Lord leads. If you need to talk to me directly, I'll be back in the back if you want to talk about how to come, become a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Be, be with us now as we, as we worship. For those that are in Christ, as they maybe deal with some of the leading of the Spirit or as they just stand in worship because you're the only hope. Be with them. And I pray, God, also for those that maybe don't know Jesus this morning, that you would, uh, you would draw their hearts to Christ this morning as their only hope for forgiveness of their sin. That they would realize, God, that the verdict is in, not guilty, and the inmate doesn't have to stay in jail anymore because Jesus paid the price and took the death for them. And that they would put their faith in Christ and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.